We have a lot to cover, 51 verses of a chapter that I, I just love. And, I, and to be honest, most of it teaches itself if we can set a beautiful context. Sometimes if we could just get right into an understanding of what in the world's taking place around it, then it would really help us, in essence, really get the nugget that it is. And so we're going to go to the Lord straight in prayer, and I'm going to explain a little bit about this thing called... Oh, God bless you. God bless you, by the way. And I mean that word for word. Don't worry, be out. Yeah. Uh, and, uh, and once we kind of go through a little bit about that, we'll be able to kind of dig into the text a little bit, because it's just... It's like watching ping pong being played, uh, this chapter. And so we'll see that here in a moment. But go to the Lord with me in prayer, would you please? Let's take a moment. Let's get quiet before the Lord. Lord, you are so, so good. And you know exactly and with and in depth and in length you want to speak to each of us here today. And you know every need represented. You know every concern, every weakness. And Lord, you know those who came stumbling in and trying to figure things out and those who came in fully expectant of what they saw. And I just pray for every one of us as you don't just call us by group, but by name. And you know every breath we breathe, you've already counted them, you've already collected our tears in a bottle, and you know every atom that makes up our outer shell. And even though man looks at that outer shell, it's you who knows the lavav, the heart, the inside. So I pray today as you tell us that as, your, as the snow falls down to the ground and does not rise up again without watering the ground it lands upon, causing it to bud and flourish, bringing seed to the sower and bread to the one who eats, so is your word. It never returns to you empty or void. So, as your word goes forth, strengthen our faith that comes by hearing that word. Strengthen our resolve in faith that we would worship you in our attention and our retention and on our intention to put it into practice, God, for that matter. So I just pray that we would have so much fun in your scripture today. In this chapter of people bouncing back and forth and not really figuring out where in the world they stand, In the same way, Lord, I just pray that every one of us, no matter how we came in, would be confident where we are with you when we leave today. We would recognize the choice we have in you. And we would be at that place where you would say, wow, God, you are good. If there be any who have yet to know you as Lord and Savior, let today be the day of their salvation. And for those who do, may our covenant with you in our own hearts be cemented all the more so. That our foreheads be like flint against that which stands against you. And that we with all of our hearts and souls and minds and strength worship you, love you, and follow you as you deserve to be followed, loved, and served. So immerse me in your Holy Spirit that you would be seen. Come upon me so that you would do the work. Take my lips and attach them to your heart and speak to each of us, bespoke to us in a way that we can hear and understand above every personality and culture and language barrier. 
and speak to us as a family and make us everything you've ordained for us to be today in Jesus' name. Amen. I would say today as I would any, please don't just believe me. Don't just assume it's true because I say so. Search the scriptures. Let the Bible always be the authority. And in fact, you can bet if I'm going to say that about me, I'll say that about everyone. Don't ever just assume a guy with a mic has anything to offer that is beyond scripture in a way that makes him an authority over it. Now, three times a year, the Jewish people, specifically the able-bodied men, the rest of were invited, but the able-bodied men were sort of, in essence, required, to go to these feasts. The first of them called Pesach, the second called Shavuot, and the third called Sukkot, or as we might call them, Passover, Pentecost, and Tabernacles. Two of them focused on the harvest because in an agrarian culture where everything is sort of, you know, we live off the ground and either we eat what comes out of the ground or we eat that which eats that which comes out of the ground. In either case, we live off of that and a bad rainy or rainless year means we go hungry. The first of them was to celebrate something that took place roughly 1,400 years prior of Jesus' day when God delivered Israel, birthed it as a nation, and delivered it out of the land of Egypt. He did that through the slaughtering of an innocent lamb and through the death of a firstborn son, if you will. And we start the year, the 14th of that, beginning of the time. The Jewish calendar begins, in essence, March, April. From that, we count 50, from the Sabbath of that first feast. 50, by the way, is the word Pentach, from which we get Pentecost. It means the 50, for which then we celebrate the feast of the first great harvest. We bring our, I mean, the beginning, we bring our first fruits at Passover, but here we bring the beginning of our harvest. And the idea is as, and we bring our best, because you wouldn't want to bring your gnarly, nasty stuff, because what you're saying is, as this is, may the rest of the harvest be as well. And then from there, we get towards the end of the harvest season, and we have this feast called Sukkot, or Tabernacles. It is, by by the way, in the seventh month, which if we start to do the math, puts us roughly almost exactly where we are right now. Now, granted, we're a little farther south in Israel than we are here, but the reason I say that is when we talk about the Feast of Tabernacles, it isn't like, you know, you're somewhere in Barbados, and you're on some like cool little beach hut or a chambao somewhere in Spain. It's still kind of nippy at night. But God had demanded this all the way back in Exodus and fortifies that in the book of Leviticus. In Leviticus 23, he tells us why. He says, there's a couple things I want you to recognize. And this is really important. He says, first of all, I want you guys to build a temporary hut. You're going to use on the top, your roof is going to be branches. Nehemiah actually makes clear even what? Nehemiah 8.15. It's olive branches, oil branches, myrtle branches, palm branches, and leafy tree branches. Now, the good news is it's right before the rainy season, and so it isn't like London. Actually, it spends some time of the year not raining, and so you can actually cover it, and actually we call it the Thousand Star Hotel, because if you look out at night, you see the thousand stars. And And it's a time where you basically put all of the comforts of your house in this thing and you're reminded of a couple things very, very important. First is that Israel spent 40 years wandering in the wilderness and God provided. 
And as God provided, they lived in temporary huts, tents, shacks. And so what we did is we want to remember that God has put us in this place and we're on this journey between one place that was a place of slavery to a place of great fruitfulness, encouragement, a place that we might call home. And now that Israel is in Israel, the land of Israel, it's easy to forget that this still isn't home. So one of the things God does is he wants to remind us of the temporariness of life. And I love the fact that God would rather do it in a feast than a funeral. Let's just be honest. The only time we ever really give serious consideration to the temporariness of this life on earth is at a funeral. And that can't be a happy time unless you really don't like the person and that's kind of a weird thing and you shouldn't be feeling that way anyway. But God would rather do it in a feast. See, the difference as somebody who knows the Lord and Philippians tells us makes us a citizen of heaven is that the temporariness of this life doesn't freak us out. Let's be honest. It encourages us. In other words, please understand, if you don't know the gift of Jesus, I want to warn you, you're on the other side of this. As a Christian, this is as bad as it gets. And it's not bad. But if you don't know the Lord, if you haven't accepted his gift on the cross, this is as good as it gets. And for you, death should freak you out. Because everything that you've worked so hard for is going to be gone. You cannot take it with you. We've heard it before. There was an American rich man named Howard Hughes. Some of you might be familiar with him. He was terribly eccentric. He, in essence, had done a lot with aerospace. And he had made, he was sort of the Bill Gates before Bill Gates, or if you will, the Apple before Apple. And uh, with all of that, they, I remember when he had passed away, they asked his accountant, who was sort of a sharp tack in the bunch, they asked him, so how much did he leave behind? And he looked at the, as they were interviewing him live, he says, what do you mean, how much did he leave behind? He left it all behind. And I just thought that was a really wise answer. The whole point is simple. That somewhere down the line, we go into this booth and we're, we're hungry to go back into the comforts of our home. It's a little more uncomfortable. We're more susceptible to the weather. And we're like, wow, isn't it great? This is temporary. Can you imagine what it would be like at least once a year you did that? Because if you don't, you, you stop thinking about eternity. And then we become really goofy as Christians. We become at best do-gooders that do nice things for people but really don't have a message much more beyond other benevolent organizations. But we have a message of eternity and it drives us for everything. So we were driven by that thought but it was also a reminder of a lack of faith because see, in this whole situation, God had actually brought them in an 11-day journey to the shores, if you will, of the Jordan and actually would love to have taken them over, but they, in their lack of faith, were forced to wander for 40 years while that old generation died off, except for two men. Neither of them, by the way, would be Moses. And then they would transfer over. And we're reminded how dangerous it is to live in doubt. Now, understand, doubt is not unbelief. Doubt's the fight between them. I don't know if you've ever heard the fight between faith and the lack of faith is like two dogs fighting and the one that wins is the one you feed. And we're reminded how dangerous it is to him and haw and go back and forth in regards to God. So we're reminded of that. So now, now hear me on this and forgive me for sort of this lengthy introduction, but it's important for us because we've got 51 verses that will primarily read through themselves. So what do we do during this feast? 
we are thankful for the end of the harvest and those booths guard our, our, our harvest. It is the best time for a wedding because the work is done. And we pray for the rains to come because we know that the rainy season starts at the end of our harvest through to the beginning of the next harvest, the beginning of the next harvest. And without that, we're in trouble. So our whole life revolves around water that has to fall from the sky, which we have no capability to force, if you think about it. So it's the only feast of the three that, are, that is actually is eight days long, verses seven. And I love the fact that if you think about it, for me as a guy, I don't know about you, but as an American, God saying, come over to my house for a one-week barbecue. I love that idea. And God sure knew how to speak to me. And in that, the first day you sacrificed 13 bulls, the second day 12 bulls, and you went down to the seventh day where you sacrificed seven. And then on the eighth day, it was the day that today they call Simcha Torah. Simcha Torah means the joy of the Torah, because perhaps you're familiar that the first five books of Scripture, the Jewish people still read every year. So they end it with two chapters on the last, or the, if you will, the first day of the feast, or second, and then they begin it all over again on this day, Simcha Torah. Now, with that in mind, this day is called the Great Day. Now, all of the days are pretty great as far as I'm concerned, but this day has some special things. One is it's a sacred congregation for which everybody convocation, we all get together and we all eat together and we celebrate together, but there's also this particular song that is being sung out of Isaiah. Now, hear me, on on this particular day, it is a day, the only day, by the way, we start the day by fasting, and we fast actually not just from food, but from water as well. And the idea of it is, we want to recognize how important it is for the ground to get water, and we kind of, for the moment, feel that dry parchness. And God had said, by the way, in the book of Deuteronomy, that our obedience was directly reliant on God's reign. If we really wanted to be refreshed and for God to provide, we really can't do that in tremendous disobedience. And God wanted to make that clear. So this was a day of reminder. So on this particular day, for what it's worth, after the lubin's built, and that's, of course, those sort of different branches put on the top when we have our thing, that they have this particular spring at the bottom of the hill of, of, of Jerusalem called the Gihon Spring. And there at the Pura Salom, a priest would go down there. Now, we haven't drank anything all day. And as we have, haven't drank anything all day, he goes down there and he gets a pitcher of water. It basically holds three logs of water, if you will. It's sort of like a big water cooler. And as he takes this thing back, there are two pots. One of them actually is filled with water, and one of them is actually filled with wine. The water one is to symbolize, if you will, how important it was for God to give the rain. And the other one, on the other hand, was to symbolize the harvest. And one is poured into the other, and then the other is poured back. And the idea is we recognize you can't have one without the other. It is, and it's the simplest in this. It's like people who don't want to plan anything, but they expect a tremendous harvest. During that, time, during that time, during that time, they actually start to cry out, Ana Adonai, Hoshiana, Adonai, Hatzlechana. Some of you may be familiar with that. It's from Psalm 118. And then it says, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The very thing, by the way, that the people will cry when Jesus actually comes on what we know as Palm Sunday. On this particular day, every year, they wave their palm branches in adoration to the God who provides rain. And they say, God, save now. God, bring prosperity or provision. And it isn't like, God, give me a Bentley. The idea is, God, could you give us rain another year? And then they say, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Now, while all of that's happening, the priest is on his way down. As he comes back, 
they begin to sing this song during this time that we call the water libation sacrifice. So I'm going to teach you a little Hebrew song. Don't worry. How many of you in here, Hebrew is not your native tongue? See, now, I knew none of you spoke Hebrew as a native tongue. I just wanted to make sure that you could understand what I'm saying in English. So we're going to put that up, if you will. Thank you. Now, let's try this first of all by saying it. Shavtem mayim. Try that. Sweet. Basason. Mi mayne ha-yeshua. Some of you already kind of go, wait a minute, I think I recognize one of those words. The last word, Yeshua. What name do we get from that? Jesus. Do you know, you're probably aware of the fact that nobody actually in Jesus' family called him Jesus. You're probably familiar with that, right? They called him Joshua, or actually Yeshua, because that's actually the Hebrew name. We make it, we Greekize it to Jesus, but in the simplest of it, it was like, you understand, it was like, this is Josh, my brother. That's the way they would have known it. One of the 11 most common names, by the way, in a day. It's kind of fun when people go, who is this Messiah? Oh, yeah, he's Josh. That's like saying, oh, really, he's from England. What's his name? John. Oh. Or he's Greek. What's his name? Chris. Of course his name's Chris. Well, you get the idea. So what's happening here is we are singing this, and we're clapping, and we're singing this song while the, while the priest is bringing up the water, and then he pours it over the two till they overflow till it rushes down our feet on the southern steps. So stand with me for a moment. Come on now. You know, like, oh, I did not come for this. Oh, get me a good Anglican service where I don't have to stand like that. And I'm not picking on that. So listen. Now, the great part about it is most of the people that are singing this in a large crowd don't have to have any pitch. They just kind of have to get the time down a little bit, if that makes sense. Now, try it with me. Shavtem ma'im besesson, mi manea Yeshua. Shavtem ma'im besesson, mi manea Yeshua. Now you're going, uh-oh, what is he having me say? He's saying, well, obviously what he's saying is, I'm going to tithe for the... No, it's not that at all. In Isaiah chapter 12, verse 3, it says, And with joy I will draw water from the well of salvation. This is what we're singing. Because the idea is, is the same way that the priest is drawing this water and pouring it to provide for us for all of this, we recognize when the Messiah comes, when God's Holy One comes, he's going to do that with our souls. So we sing this, not just the well, or it would be cool, the well of a lot of water, because isn't it cool? God gave us a water table. But from, with joy. I'm not going to draw water just from the well of water. I'm going to draw water from the well of salvation and I'm going to do it happy and joyful because it's salvation, yo. So try this with me and you're going, oh, this is, I finished. Okay, so ready? Now the rest of it's actually, that's where they start twirling and all that stuff that becomes really cool. And it's like, I won't make you do that part. Go ahead and have a seat. Now, our context, chapter 5, Jesus was in Jerusalem. If you remember, and he healed a man that was lame at the pool of Bethesda. There at a sheep gate, near a sheep gate, on the Temple Mount, by the way. You can still visit the place today. They built this big church there, but uh, just the same, uh, just beside it. 
And that was a real problem because he did it on the Sabbath. And boy, that brought some problems. As a result of that, what it told us is, as a result of him doing it on the Sabbath, they sought to kill him. God already told us two chapters ago, they have been, they've been seeking to kill him. Now, with that in mind, last chapter, Jesus went back up to Galilee and he was there. If you remember, John the Baptist had been murdered. Jesus finds out. He wants to get away with his guys, but instead a bunch of people follow him. So what does he do? He has compassion and he feeds them and he heals them and he teaches them. But somewhere down the line in all this, he still has to reconcile the fact that John the Baptist's murder means the cross is right in front of him now. And John the Baptist, everything that happens in his life that's sort of landmark is a landmark for Jesus. It's a pivotal moment in his ministry. Now it's like everything's about the cross. As a matter of fact, you're probably aware of the fact, Jesus is going to get us, or I should say John is going to get us to the last week in chapter 13, and we're not that far from that. So Jesus is now about to head down to Jerusalem. I remind you, down in Jerusalem, Judea is the, if you will, it's the borough. That's where they're waiting to kill him. And this is what we have. And I remind you, this is at the feast. The only time it's mentioned by name in the New Testament, this Feast of Tabernacles, where we sing this song, where we feast, where we pray for God to bring a harvest, and a time where we remember the temporariness of life and remember how stupid it is to live in doubt, is the idea. Or how futile, if you will. So it says this, then, if you will. Uh, Chapter 7, verse 1, after that very lengthy introduction. After these things, Jesus walked in Galilee, for he did not want to walk in Judea because the Jews sought to kill him. Does anyone have a hard time figuring out what that means? I got the idea. They're waiting to kill him there. Which one of you in your right mind wants to go where they want to kill you? That's probably why some of you don't go to Tottenham Hill. Now, now the Jewish feast of tabernacles was at hand. That's our context time-wise, 15th of Tishri, September, October. And his brothers therefore said to him, these are, by the way, his half-brothers, Same mom, if you will, different dad. Depart from here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the work that you are doing, for no one does anything in secret while he himself seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, well, then show yourself to the world. Hello. For even his brothers did not believe him. The context at the moment is you realize our first character is introduced into this feast. I remind you, a feast where we're reminded how futile it is to doubt is that Jesus' own brothers look at him and have no faith in him. And Jesus, by the way, they're already going to say later, this is the prophet, which comes from Deuteronomy 18, where Moses himself is told, by the way, that the Lord will raise up a prophet like him, and you better hear him. And in the same way, not only does Moses, the delivering prophet, if you will, he was also the one that people had a real problem with, kind of that who died and made you boss thing. And in that same way, they're going to treat Jesus the same, and we see it already here. Jesus says to them, my time has not yet come, but for you, your time is always ready. The world can't hate you. It hates me because I testify that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not yet going to the feast. My time has not yet fully come. When he said these things to them, he remained in Galilee. But when his brothers had gone up, well, then he also went up to the feast, but not openly as it were, but in secret. So it starts with this. His brothers are infinitely ready at any time. Just, well, hello. This seems like a real sort of PR, you know, boo-boo here for you not to go up at this point. Everybody's waiting. Hit up at the beginning when everyone's gathered. And you're like, hey, everybody, I'm the guy you're looking for. And Jesus is looking, going, you know, the problem with this is that you guys, in your taunting, you've really displayed something. And that is, you really don't believe here. And you just feel like any time's good for you. Now, hear me on this, because God not only said that these three particular feasts were just moments that would be great to actually go and have a barbecue with God, 
Beyond that, he tells us that these were eternal testimonies or covenants. Now understand, in other words, what God says is these three things speak about the three most important moments in history. Now, I get the first one. Passover, the slaughter of the firstborn son, the death of the Lamb of God, so that a a nation in bondage could go free. Well, it doesn't surprise me. It would be on that that Jesus, the Lamb of God, as John would call him at the beginning of John's ministry with him, would be sacrificed. Jesus dies on Passover. The Lamb of God, the firstborn son, dying just as is promised so that we who are slaves to sin, as Jesus taught us in John, could go free. But then we count from there to the feast of the first great harvest, Pentecost, Shavuot. Now, for those who might call themselves Pentecostal, I always find it interesting because it doesn't seem to be necessarily God's primary focus. The focus for 1,400 years has been the feast of the first great harvest. And they'll go, well, why do you call yourself Pentecostal? Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2, what happens? Well, the Holy Spirit comes down upon his church. He births his church. Beautiful. So what happens? Well, then people speak in tongues. And I go, and? Peter stands up and speaks. True. And then what happens? 3,000 people woke up that day going to hell and went to sleep in the arms of God, resting in him. Do you realize what happened on that day? It was the first great harvest. That's the point. Everything else was means to that end. And now the season of harvest has begun. But the last great harvest yet to come, the one where at that point the groom comes and snatches up his bride and celebrates together. It is a time of new beginnings and a whole new world. And of course, that is yet to come. And I find it interesting as he points us to that time, the time when the Lord comes back for his people as he tells us in First Thessalonians 4 that his own brothers are like, why don't you just show up now? Peter actually tells us that there will be mocking in those last days and saying, where is the sign of his coming? Ever since creation, it's just been like this all the time. There will be that same mocking before the Lord comes back, before the groom comes back for his bride. There'll be that, oh, and the worst part is, it wasn't just people, it was brothers, people calling themselves brothers. It will be the church, beloved. that will be like, do you really believe that nonsense? I'm like, it's in scripture. I really actually hope God's filming this moment because if there's like a heavenly YouTube, we'll watch it together later. So Jesus does come. Verse 11. The Jews sought him at the feast and they said, well, where is he? Now, there was much complaining or murmuring, if you will, among the people concerning him. Now, some said, he's good. Others said, no, on the contrary, he deceives the people. However, no one spoke openly for fear of him, for the fear of the Jews. Now, at the middle of the feast, Jesus went up to the temple and he taught. Now, understand, do you see already what it looks like in the wilderness? Because this is where we're at with the tabernacles. There is a debate. There are some that actually believe that Jesus is everything he claims to be. And there are others, on the other hand, who don't. And in the same way, there was the same sort of conversation happening with Moses 1,400 years prior. Now, interesting, if you remember, back in the last chapter, Jesus had a massive dropout. He talked about the fact that the bread from which man must live on cannot be the bread that just came down from heaven that we eat 
physically that was just temporary bread, but he himself had to be the permanent solution. And it had to be more than an ideal we ascribe to, but he had to be inside of us. There had to be faith and an allowance for him to come and reside inside of us. For most people, they were like, oh, this is a tough teaching, skleros. Who Who can follow that? Jesus has seen a massive bailout last chapter, and he was left with a small huddle of people, if you will, that were still called disciples. I wonder how many of those dropouts are here in this crowd right now going, oh, he deceives the people. I just wonder. Nonetheless, notice they wouldn't speak openly because at this particular moment, the religious leadership had told them, you want to speak about Jesus, we kick you out of the church, or in their case, the synagogue. Now it's the middle of the feast, verse 14, and Jesus stands up in the temple to teach. And he taught. Verse 15, the Jews marveled, saying, how does this man know letters having never studied? Now, could you imagine standing up in a crowd, opening your Bible and starting to read it, and the thing that amazes people most is that you can read? The word for letters is the word grammar. We get the word grammar from it. And what they're simply saying is, how in the world can this guy read? He hasn't gone to our school. Now, I want you to recognize They're going to have a lot of problems, these teachers of the law. Now, I don't know if you're aware of this, but a couple hundred years ago, we had the same situation here. A couple hundred years ago, do you know who was responsible for teaching this country to read? The church. The church was responsible with the purpose that if you could read, you could read the scriptures, and then no maniac could stand up and declare himself anything that the Bible held contrary because you had the authority of scripture to be able to say, mm, that don't play here, or that doeth not playeth here, as we might say a couple hundred years ago. But somewhere down the line, the church lost vision. They lost vision of why in the world to teach them to read, and they got a bit lazy with it. Instead, they backed off. And our country here, more than 70% of the people who lived here could not read. We're aware of this. The one constant reminder of that is when you walk by the pubs. Because those that actually are older, what you'll find is there's a name, and there's a placard that sort of hangs, hangs down. Have you seen those? Sort of like, it's like the green man. And then there's a placard of a green guy. That was because people could not read. So I would say, hey, yes, meet me at the green man. He'd be like, "Mm, I hope they have a picture in front because I ain't getting any other words. That was kind of the idea. And in the same way, this particular group of people assumed that if you were from Galilee, you didn't know how to read because they so loathed the people up there. In the way that they spoke, perhaps like you might think of an American in that, that they wouldn't allow in Jerusalem, in the 365, 366 different synagogues that were in Jerusalem proper, none of them allowed a person from Galilee to read the benediction because they said that the way he spoke was so profane they would actually be blasphemy from to read it in front of people. How sad is that? Now, we all have different places for that. And whether that's Essex or the East Side or America or Texas or wherever it is, somewhere in all of it, there's this thing where it's like, oh, well, that was the idea. And they were just going, I can't believe this guy can even read. Now, I remind you, we are remembering what it was like to be so insane as to not follow the person God had raised up to lead them into the promised land from their deliverance. Now, please, please hear me on this. Deliverance is never removal. When someone goes, I just want to thank the Lord because he just delivered me. 
He delivered me from this and he delivered me from that. I'm like, well, great. What did he deliver you to? Could you imagine calling for a pizza? I actually, to be honest, I look around the room, I think Bruno can fully imagine that. As long as it has chips on it. And, you know, and imagine if he's like, I'd like you to deliver a pizza. And they'd be like, well, great. You've got it. And they charge him. It never shows up at his house because they just have to remove it from the pizza place. Oh, it's been delivered. It hasn't been delivered until it shows up at Bruno's house. But it is amazing. We as Christians could go, oh, I've been delivered. Well, I think that's great, but what have you been delivered to? Otherwise, you've just been removed. And our God is not a God of nots. He's a God of instead ofs. There's the beauty in it. And we get so caught in these cultural statements. And what happens in the end is like, let's face it. It's like if you've been in a horrible situation and you flee, you don't care where you're going. The only thing that's important is getting out. People are getting crushed because, of, you know, because a bomb goes off, you know, let's face it, in a tube station. They didn't care where they were going. The only place that was important was away. And we have those moments in our lives. Then we, these sort of bombs go off in our life, and all we want is to get out. But unfortunately, often we run just into the next train that's about to blow up, and we didn't even know it. So it's bad relationship after bad relationship. It's addiction after another addiction. Well, anyways, in all of that, understand Moses was trying to do so much more than just get them out of Egypt. He wanted them into the promised land. But you know what the interesting thing is? Moses wouldn't be able to go himself. And you know what was the issue? It was over water. Don't forget that. Interesting, the same thing we're dealing with here. Well, the state of the, the before Jesus' confrontation, if you will, as it begins, is that the people are completely... They're freaked out, amazed that Jesus can read, and they don't want to talk about it openly. Verse 16, Jesus answered, and he said, My doctrine, literally, by the way, the digache, and it means teaching or instruction. It's not mine, but him who sent me. In other words, I didn't have to go to your school. I was tutored by my dad. If anyone wants to do his will, he'll know concerning the doctrine, whether it is from God or whether I speak on my own authority. Now, he who speaks for himself seeks his own glory, but he who seeks the glory of the one who sent him is true. And no unrighteousness is in him. Did not Moses give you the law? Yet none of you keeps the law. Why do you seek to kill me? Now Jesus turns this defensive moment and he flips it to going on the offense. Have you noticed that? Why do you want to kill me? Now, for what it's worth, we're going to see here in a moment, Jesus says that in 19, in verse 20, they're going to say, oh, you have a demon who's seeking to kill you. And by verse 25, some of the crowd are saying, isn't that the guy they're trying to kill? That just shows you how insane things are. But I remind you, that's what it looks like in the wilderness. There are those like, well, that's him. And then there's like, I'm not too sure that's him. And then the end of it all, that's what happens in our lives when we have wilderness times in our life. Well, we're trying to decide whether Jesus is a choice, if he's any choice at all, or whether he's the choice. But I guarantee you, once he becomes the choice, everything changes. Well, in other words, if we were to look at this crowd, if you will, as the, if you will, as the units of our own heart, Chances are you'll find a little bit of each of these in there if you're not careful. So the people respond, Jesus, like, you're trying to kill me. The people answer, oh, you have a demon. That's trash talk. You're probably aware of that. That's, uh, you know, Jewish trash talk. Who's seeking to kill you? Jesus answered and he said to them, I did one work and you all marvel, referring back to John 5 with the healing of the man that was lame. Moses, therefore, gave you circumcision. No, not that it's from Moses. It's from the fathers, Genesis 17. And you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. Then if a man receives circumcision on the Sabbath so that the law of Moses can't be broken or should not be broken, are you angry with me because I made a man completely well on the Sabbath? Do not judge according to appearance, 
but judge with a righteous judgment. Now, the law is in Leviticus 12, I believe it's verse 3, that it has to be on the eighth day for a boy to do this. Well, well actually, for the parents to do it, or actually a moil. The boy's not going to do it himself. And it doesn't matter when the eighth day is. If it's Sabbath, it still has to be done. He goes, you know, what's interesting is you say you can't work on the Sabbath, but you know what I find interesting? The people that seem to be the most at work on the Sabbath are the people trying to catch Jesus. It seems like they're, trying, they're working 24-7. He's like, you know, clearly this is to keep a covenant and you'll break the Sabbath for that and it doesn't seem like anybody gets killed for that. And you're upset because I, I mean, I meant well. Do you think that's a little weird, guys? Now, aren't you thankful that God doesn't rest? Aren't you thankful that you're like, I sure hope I get into no serious trials today because this is God's day off. Praise God. And I can confidently say for myself and you, if you're honest, I need them all the time. Well, some say in Jerusalem as a result of that, verse 25, isn't this he whom they seek to kill? Look, he speaks boldly and they say nothing to him. Do indeed the rulers know that this truly is the Christ? However, we know where this man is from. But when, this, when the Christ comes, no one's going to know where he's from. By the way, that's not scriptural. That's traditional. Funny as it is, that's our second of our two weird areas. The first is, you're trying to kill me. You have a demon. Who's trying to kill you? Isn't this who they're trying to kill? Yeah, you kind of see the weirdness in that. Here's the second. Well, no one's going to know where he's from. By verse 41, they're going to say, well, doesn't he? Well, you came out of Galilee, and he's supposed to come out of Bethlehem. We've already read the book. We know he came from Bethlehem. That's fun. And then, of course, they'll say by the end of it in verse 52, oh, no prophet comes from Galilee, and we'll have fun with that when we get there. The whole point is, is they're like, we're not going to know where he's from. And they didn't even know where he was from. They're proving their own point. Jesus goes, well, you know where I'm from ultimately. He cried out and taught in the temple, verse 28, saying, you both know me and know where I'm from. I've not come of myself, but he who sent me is true, whom you do not know. Man, I wouldn't want Jesus to say that to me. But I know him, and I'm from him, and he sent me. They understand enough to know that this is something to arrest them for. If he's like, well, you know where I'm from. I'm from Galilee. Nobody arrests a guy for being from Galilee. But it says in verse 30, the first of three times, someone will seek to take him. They sought to take him, but no one laid their hands on him because his hour had not come. Now, please hear me in this, because I'd like to clear something up that can come sometimes with our more fantastical part of our family. There is this idea, and I think it came from those who were raised in Star Wars, that Jesus had this sort of Jedi mind trick. That somehow, first of all, he was, you know, a foot taller than everyone else. He had a gold plate around his head and he levitated an angel saying when he spoke. And somewhere in all of that, someone wants to kill him and Jesus goes, whoa, 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 whoa. And everyone's like frozen. And then Jesus is like, excuse me, kind of popping out. And then it's like Jesus goes, and then they're like, oh, where'd he go? Where'd he go? Where'd he go? And what it tells us is the reason Jesus was not apprehended is because his time hadn't come yet. Truth be told, You are not going to die one breath early. He's already counted those breaths, and he knows how many there are. Now, because you don't know, don't be stupid. Don't be like, I think we should play football on Tottenham Court Road. Ah, Not a good idea. You go, well, my time's going to be my time. Yeah, but you don't want a bus to take you to your time. 
truth be told in all of this, the reason why they couldn't get him is because his time just hadn't been there. Now, there are times where they'll say that they wanted to stone him and he kind of slipped in between them and there we go with that Jedi mind trick thing again. But let's just be honest. Do you know what Jesus probably looked like? This is going to really be shocking. A Jewish guy. Do you know why? Because he was a Jewish guy. He was clothed in a Jewish guy's body. Now, I'm not one of those people that's going to be like, they all look alike. But you cover enough guys in beard hair you know, and like all of that, you put that beautiful olive skin on him and then you cover them in a white top and all you get is like this little beard sticking out. It's fairly easy to blend in in the crowd, especially when you've got a, and I'm not trying to be mean, I'm just being honest. It's like, and understand to the Jews, it is fundamental you do not kill an innocent person. Ironic that they killed, you know, but we're all guilty of the, of the death of Christ. But in that, it's like, because it talks about that. It says there are seven things. God, he's eight that he finds detestable. He says a haughty look and a lying tongue and hands that shed innocent blood. And they know that. The Romans would use that. When the, the Jewish people had sort of huddled up, by the way, in several of the places like Masada, and they knew that if the Romans came, they didn't have a problem killing them. They were guilty. So what they would do is they would take Hebrews and they would put them in front of them and run them up because they couldn't shoot at one of their own. So it isn't like you're just going to throw a rock and hope you hit the bearded guy that actually was Jesus. I just wanted to clear it up. I don't want to take out the mystique, but I do want to say, if we were there, we'd be like, oh, he did it again. And I think I'd be a little nervous because they want to throw rocks at him and here I'd be next to him with a beard and olive skin going, oh, okay. So Jesus, then they'll understand. No one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. Verse 31. Many of the people believed in him. He said, when the Christ comes, will he do more signs than what this man has done? Now, by the way, in the book of Micah, God talks about the coming of the Messiah in chapter 7, verse 15. And he says this, as in the days when you came out of Egypt, I will show them wonders. One of the things the people genuinely believed, and rightly so, is that when the Messiah comes, he's going to do really, really cool things. And so they're like, this is the coolest stuff we've seen. Do you really think a guy's going to show up and do more than this? So there are those who in the face of this confrontation, are going to believe. Now, side note, because the rest, again, we're moving straight through this. One of the things in this culture we live to avoid is a confrontation. We hate it. It it can ruin our day. Let's face it. If you spent seven hours of the day and every person you ran into just went, wow, you look great today. Or, wow, you're sure beautiful. Or, wow. And you start to have a conversation like, wow, that you are really intelligent. And you got all of this. But somewhere in the middle of that day, one person went, oh, you're stupid and I hate you and your mother's ugly. Or something like that. Let's face it. When you went to sleep tonight, what's the one conversation you remember? It's the one chocolate chip in the cookie and you're still tasting chocolate. It's amazing. And please hear me on this. We get so narrow and it's, it's, let's face it, it isn't a fun thing. We don't like that. A person goes off on us for whatever reason, whether we deserve it or not, it's still not fun. If it's a crazy person and they step on a bus and they look at Shamar and they're like, I hate you because you remind me of my great grandpa gravy, you know, or whatever. And you're like, he's from Jupiter. You know, even after all of that weirdness, you go to sleep at night and there's still like a weird silt on you. You just can't wash off of you. Even though what he said was crazy. But I want want you to recognize Jesus is in a confrontation with religious leaders who, I remind you, have freaked out the people to quiet. 
Remember, it says they didn't want to talk openly about Jesus because they were freaked out. And you need to recognize, often the reason the Lord allows such confrontations isn't even about the person that's confronting you. It's about the audience that's watching. And God does some of his greatest work with observers. Because let's face it, it's the one moment where you feel like you have the freedom to make up your mind and you're not being pushed into a decision. Aren't we we just being honest here? When someone's like, hey, you need Jesus and I need you to believe in Jesus. Hey, that's still cool because it still needs to happen. But you know, it's like, oh, I don't know. I'm kind of freaking out over it. And you realize if I say yes, I feel like he wins and I lose. But when you're watching, there's no person that you feel like you're defeating or being defeated by because God's just like, please realize what's going on here. Back in Chico, and this is now 26 years ago, that was, I do believe, older than Shamar is. During that time, there was this particular festival they wanted to have at the shopping mall. And it was the psychic fair. And there was, in the center, in the courtyard area, sort of imagine if you removed the food court from the Westfield Mall there at Stratford, and you filled it full of everything from tea leaves to looking at your feet to reading your cards and dice and bones and whatever else, chicken feet, and, and all of that. And they were all in these like little t- tents. It really kind of looked like a gypsy camp. And all of that was sort of in the middle. And we, we, there were a few of us, and we decided, well, is there something we can do? And it, like, you know, it wasn't like we were going to go there and try to burn it down. We really just, to be honest, just didn't want anyone visiting, and we wanted them saved. So we set up a thing called the Truth Booth so people could actually see at least what Scripture says to compare it. But there was another group, and again, a bit more fantastical of our family that might be a little bit more onward Christian soldier kind of thing. And, uh, and, they, went, and they decided they were going to just do these prayer walks, which I loved. So they were, and they were led by the pastor's son who was 15 years old, 15, younger than everyone in this room, uh, at least chronologically. And, and he's got this group of people that are roughly his age, and they just walk around kind of like Joshua without the trumpets. And they're silently going, oh, Lord, just please shut them down and so forth. Well, in all of that, this gal comes flying out. She's roughly six feet tall. And she comes flying out, and she's maybe... She's older than I am today. So she's still young. But she just came out and she was freaking out. And she was screaming at this kid. She's like, I can't seem to get anything. You're shutting down all my reception. I went from 4G to no service. That's kind of the idea here. And she was, I'm telling you, spit was flying. I, I'm amazed her eyeballs stayed in her head. She was clearly quite angry. But the best part was the kid. Now, for those of us who have had confrontations for following Christ, chances are it wasn't one this crazy. And she's like, I'm going to curse you and I'm going to blah, which is funny because she can't seem to get any reception. So I'm not really sure exactly what kind of curse she's going to get at this moment. Maybe they can get it on hold. But uh, scripture says, by the way, that no curse against you will land for what it's worth. And this kid kept his composure and he just went, do you know, Jesus still loves you. She's like, don't tell me Jesus loves me. But what was amazing, though, was this particular Medusa that was freaking out in front of us had gathered quite a crowd. But the crowd were the crowd that were lining up to go into the the psychic fair. But what had happened is because of her loss of composure and his amazing composure, 
everyone afterwards went and we got to share Jesus with the group of people because they just didn't want to go into the crazy lady. And the whole point was, is that that confrontation, you could bet. Now, chances are, knowing this kid, he probably thought, well, all hell's going to break loose literally today. But it, let's be honest, in all of that, that confrontation couldn't have been fun. I mean, his voice was cracking before the confrontation, nonetheless during it. But afterwards, the fruit it bore. Two of the people that wound up leading Bible studies we would send out got saved at that particular event. A guy named Matt and a guy named, I think it was Asher. They came to that first. I think. The reason, the reason I say that is, Jesus is in a confrontation that you know he's not going to sleep well over here. Because it is ugly and it's nasty and the people aren't polite. But there's an audience. And what he tells us is, the audience is starting to believe in Jesus because of this confrontation. Let me ask you, would you tomorrow, not that I'm saying this is going to happen, but would you tomorrow volunteer for such a confrontation if you knew that somebody you love would say yes to Jesus because of it? Now, in this room, you have your Christian costume on. Chances are you would say yes. But tomorrow, if it happens, and I'm no prophet, but if it happens tomorrow, will you be ready? What if it's tonight? So Jesus, let's, let's pull this in. Verse 33. Jesus said to them, I shall be with you a little while longer. And then I go to him who sent me. You will seek me and you can't find me. Where I go, you cannot come. Boy, I can't imagine how much this would hurt Jesus to say. Because you realize what he's saying? And he's going to go be with the Father in heaven. And he's looking at people and going, you're never going to go in. And I think what it would be like for Moses in, in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, when by a lack of faith, God goes, you know, they're never going in. That lack of faith is never going to take them in. But this is the God who's dying for him on the cross. He's looking and going, you don't even realize I'm dying for you. And you won't put your trust in that. So the Jews are going to try to, you know, that are here, said among themselves, where does this man intend to go that we cannot find him? Does he intend to go to the dispersion among the Greeks? Which, by the way, from about 160s BC, when Antiochus Epiphanes just started just trying to kill everything Jewish, they fled out of Israel, northeast to the area of Turkey, and I'm sorry, northwest to the area of Turkey, and east to the areas of Iraq and Iran. They just bolted because they wanted this to be alive. And they knew that there were these Jewish pockets down in Alexandria, Egypt. And so he's like, where I go, you can't come. And they're like, oh, is he going to go there? Which I think they could come. What do I know? And Jesus is like, no, you're missing it. You know why you can't come? Verse 37, and this is our apex. On the last day of the feast... Remember that great day of the feast? The day when we fasted from water until the water libation ceremony? Where we sing, While that's happening, Jesus stands up in the southern steps and says, Anyone thirsty? That's kind of a rhetorical question. He knows everybody is. Well, then let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as scripture said, out of his heart will flow living water. And I love the fact he doesn't just say, It'll satisfy. He's like, you will be satisfied for good. He pulls this out of Isaiah 44, 3, Isaiah 58, verse 11, and in several other places. But the idea that God says, I'll take that which is dry and make it a thirsty river. I'll make it now a flourishing river. Now, with this in mind, the point is, is that in your soul there is a thirst, even as there is in your body. 
you're probably aware of the fact that you're made up of more than just your physical body. But the people try to explain, and I never got this as a kid. I was raised a Christian. The idea that you're like, you're a person with a soul. And I'm like, like a pet? Like, what's a soul? I'm taking my soul for a walk? How do I feed my soul? And I realized that just didn't make sense to me. And then I realized, actually, you're a soul with a body. That made sense to me. That this is the part that I cash in, and this is my tabernacle. One day, and praise God as I get older, I'm really glad to trade this one in for a new model. Glory to God. And the moment I recognize that, I realize, why do I spend more time on something that I know I'm cashing in than the one thing I know I'm going to have forever? Now, what about you? What are you holding on to? Because my body thirsts because it needs water to live. But my soul... My being needs God's presence. Without it, I can't live either. And Jesus goes, don't you realize your physical thirst is to remind you that inside you need something too. God's spirit. And he goes, and if you're willing to come to me and you're willing to believe, I'm going to do more than just give you enough to live on. You're going to become a fountain so that other people can come and receive as well. That's radical. Therefore, the crowd's going to respond, verse 40. But I have to give you a quick story. Believe it or not, we're almost done. Covenant Garden, one of our studies, we had gone through something of a similar nature. In the beginning of it, we had taught them the song. Really fun. And so, you know, everyone kind of had it and they kind of memorized it and they were all kind of tight with it, all that. And then once we were done with it, we were just beginning the study. And lo and behold, it's the one with sort of the West End performers that had come in from, you know, Charlie and Chocolate Factory and Les Mis and so forth. And one of the guys had come in late after all of that. So we're kind of in this study, and he kind of crept in, a guy named Jack, real sweetheart. He kind of comes and sits in, and we start to talk about this a little bit. And I says, and as they pour the water, they begin to sing. And do you know what they sang? And everyone starts to go, shove to mind, except Jack, who okay, wasn't there for that part. And he's looking around the room going, how does everybody know this song? Anyways, irrelevant, but I thought I'd share it with you. All right. So look at the crowd says in verse 40, truly he is, notice not a prophet. What does it say? He is the prophet. The, is that Deuteronomy 18, the one that God said he'd raise up like Moses. Now others say, oh, no, actually he's the Christ. But some said, well, will the Christ come out of Galilee? Hasn't scripture said that the Christ comes from the seed of David and from the town of Bethlehem? I'm like, where were you when that star moved and the shepherds and the angels sang and the wise men showed up with their camels and their gifts. Apparently you weren't there. Of course, that's from Micah 5 too, the idea of the Bethlehem. There was division among the people because of him, as there was in the wilderness. Now some wanted to take him, but no one laid hands on him. Second time. Why? Because his time had not yet come. So the officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees. And they said, well, why haven't you brought him? The officer said, no one ever spoke like this man. The Pharisees answered and said, are you also deceived? Also means other people must be. Have any of the rulers of the Pharisees believed in him? No, that would be really uncomfortable for Nicodemus, who's standing there at that moment going, uh, uh, oh. But this crowd who does not know the law is accursed. Our last thing is we bring it to our last. Oh, and that's 50, yeah, 53 verses. Uh, you know, Yeah, I'll give you the other two for free. All right. 
it's interesting is in Luke, and five, Luke 5, 17, it tells us that these people were called the teachers of the law. And what they're saying is this crowd that doesn't know the law, I think you should fire yourself. Write out a P45, give it to yourself. Because if you're the teacher of the law and the crowd doesn't know the law, well, then you didn't do your job. But it's worse. What they're saying is if they don't know scripture properly, they're accursed. It's a fun place to start because they're going to just about to show the same. No, for what it's worth. One of them, Nicodemus, he who came to Jesus by night, being one of them, said to them, does our law judge a man before it hears him and knows what he's doing? One of the things that confrontation does, those horrible moments we hate so much, is it doesn't just bring people to faith. It also emboldens those who already are but afraid to speak up. Because sooner or later, you're going to be the one person standing. Now, you may barf and freak out and pass out later, but at that moment, you stand and someone else goes, well, if she can stand or he can stand, I can stand. The problem is, there's just not a lot of people standing. It only takes one that doesn't bow when everyone else, when the gold idol is brought out and everyone else is dropped, and he's like, nope, not going to do it. Now, if you want, be the three Hebrew boys. Well, then get a couple brothers that you know are sisters that aren't going to bow. But in the end of it all, do you know anybody that when it comes down to it, isn't going to bow to the things of this world and take a stand for Christ? Nicodemus, actually, by the way, interesting, because his name means victory over the people. I think it's an interesting name for a guy like this. And he's standing up amongst a crowd. Now understand, you've got this crowd, and they're like, well, none of us have believed in none of that. Is anyone really? You know, it's like, obviously, have, have any of the leaders believed that? And meanwhile, Bruno's going, um, <clears throat> awkward. So he's like, oh, we need to kill this guy. And he's like, uh, hold on, excuse me for a second. Don't we have a legal proceeding? We have a jurisprudence, and I mean, we need to really hear him and see what he's really doing before we just judge him, right? And they look at him and go, yo, mama, is what they're looking at. It says in, in Jewish terms, it says in verse 52, are you also from Galilee, which is a dis? Search and look, for no prophet has arisen out of Galilee. No. There's a problem with that. that. Remember that guy that was swallowed by the big fish? Do you remember his name? You know, yeah, most people actually know that. You don't have to know the Lord to know that one. For whatever reason, we all know. Does anyone know he's from? Yeah, that's even weirder. Even a place called Gath Hefer. Oh, that was so good. Well done. Gath Hefer. By the way, Gath Hefer is in Galilee. We get that for what it's worth in 2 Kings 14 and then back in Joshua 19. You just have to do the math. Like new prophets come from there. Now remember, these are the people, these people don't know scripture, so they're accursed. And then they don't know scripture. Ouch. But back in Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus came, he told us this. Chapter 9. Nevertheless, the gloom will be upon her who is distressed as when she was lightly esteemed. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali and afterward more heavily oppressed by her by the way of the sea beyond the Jordan and Galilee of the Gentiles, a people who have walked in darkness have seen the great light. Those who dwell in the shadow of death, upon them the light has shined. Now, does anyone know? I bet this is probably a simple guess. Just try a guess. Where do you think is the land of Zebulun and Naphtali? Galilee. Not only was a prophet from there, but it was prophesied that the Messiah would have to come from there. All they had to do was read the book that they said that the people were cursed to not know. Now, let me bring this to close. Do you believe, by the way, we've gone through 53 verses here? And walked through a festival. 
at the same time. In the end of it all, this is what we're left with. We're left with a religious group of people. Don't miss this. They're religious, but they're going to hell. Now, for the, and I, I really, it grieves me that we try to walk away from terms like that. We're like, oh, I'm not religious, I just love the Lord. Well, yeah, because, but wouldn't we better to just to take the word back? The word should mean devoted, is what it really originally means. But let's be honest, when someone thinks religion, what they basically think is somewhere between a sort of a cocktail of tradition and politics. Isn't that kind of what it, I don't know, you're probably religious. I'm like, actually, I'm a whole new kind of religious. Well, actually, it's the oldest kind of religious, but the real kind of religious. I love God, and he loves me. And he told me to tell you, uh-oh, this might become a confrontation. Well, then I hope other people are looking. <laughs> and in the end of it all, there are going to be those who are too proud to say yes. It's like, no, man, I've got my own thing. Yeah, you do. But please hear me. In the end of it all, what God set up all the way back in that book, everyone avoids, they call Leviticus, that I love, was that the sacrificer never needed to be perfect. But his sacrifice did. You can't pick yourself perfect. Once you're imperfect, you're imperfect. But you can pick your sacrifice. And you stand before God with a cover charge, a perfect sacrifice. Let me ask you, what are you going to pick? How many times you've gone to church? I'm a generally good person. Is it perfect? Have you been perfect? Is that your sacrifice? Well, I've prayed a few times. Perfectly? Well, I've had the Pope throw some water on me. And you're going to trust that. And I'm not dissing the Pope. God made clear, all the way back in that same book, that when the high priest, the Kohen Gadol, went in on a day called Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement, and he offered a sacrifice for sins, it had to be perfect, and you knew it was perfect in a very simple way. You wouldn't volunteer to be this guy. Because if you went in and either the sacrifice was imperfect or the sacrifice for the priest first wasn't, God just killed him. Now, any of you volunteer for that? So when he went in there to offer that sacrifice, we in essence held our breath and we waited. And as we waited, we knew that God accepted the sacrifice in a simple way. He just came out alive again. And then we erupted, did the wave, and we're very happy. In the same way, Jesus took the perfect sacrifice of himself on the cross. How do I know it was enough? The simple, he just came out alive again. And on this day where we celebrate the last harvest, the same time of year where we're at right now, I just have a question for you. What are you trusting in? What are you banking on? When death levels every human being, regardless of how rich or poor or nice or not, it's the one thing that, ra- that separated Jesus from every other religious leader. It isn't like there's a buffet of options. It's either you do it or he's done it. And that's the only two religions there are. And I want to give you that choice politely right where I'm at. I'm not going to touch you. I'm going to be right here. And I'm going to give you that choice too. But there's two things to say as we pray now. One, if you're not sure you've accepted that gift, you can walk out of here, sure. Make that choice today. But please, please, please stop dancing with your pride, assuming somehow that's going to get you where you need to be. But if you have said yes to Jesus... My challenge for you today is 
to be ready for the next confrontation, whatever that looks like, and to do so with grace and truth because you never know who's watching. Will you pray with me? Lord, I know that normally we don't cover this much material and probably by now most of us, our brains are jelly. But we really don't want to miss the forest for the trees. In this, God, we recognize Jesus, you came at a time when people celebrated the harvest you've given and pray for that time when the rains would come. And they were reminded of the temporariness of their earthly dwelling in a way that wasn't supposed to be just grievous, but in a way that was hopeful, that you had a land beyond that where they could call home. God, I just pray for every person here that your own spirit would show them the thirst that is in their soul that has caused them to try so many things that have damaged their lives to fill. And you tell us that if we're willing to believe on the gift you've given us at the cross, that you would pour your Holy Spirit into us. And all that you're waiting for is permission. And I don't have to convince anyone. The Bible makes clear Jesus died on the cross according to Scripture, was buried just like Scripture promised, and on the third day rose again just like Scripture promised and was seen by a whole lot of people. And he died for your sins and mine, your shame and mine, your guilt and mine. And he really just wants to pick up the tab. But the only thing that's left is your choice. Do you really want to say no to that? Because of something you think you can bank on better than that perfect sacrifice? So I don't have to convince you. But today in this room, if you want to accept this gift... I'm going to pray a prayer and I ask you to listen. And at the end, if you agree, simply say amen. And what you're saying is, I agree. So be it in my life. It's what amen means. Now, maybe you're afraid of what the person next to you might think. Maybe you're afraid of what could go on beyond this. But let's face it, you should be more concerned about what could go on beyond this if you say no. Because this is a God who loves you and really just wants to envelop you in that love. Why would you say no to that? And right now, the prompting in your heart is coming from him, not me. Here's the prayer, listen. And then at the end, if you agree, you know what to do. God in heaven, I'm not perfect. You know that, I know that. So I can't offer me, that's not perfect. I can't offer you all of my good works because they aren't perfect. Or all of my religious observances, they're not perfect. But you've not asked me to. You've already made the payment through sending your only begotten son on the cross. Perfect. Tempted in every way, yet without sin. Perfect. And when he died on the cross, my bill was paid. When he was buried, 
so was my filth. So was my shame. And when he rose again, you offer me a new life, exchanging the old for the new. And all you're asking is for me to say yes. Yes to Jesus' payment and giving him now the opportunity to reconstruct and rebuild a whole new life out of this. And I may not understand everything, but I know that this I need to say yes to. So I say yes. Confessing Jesus as my payment, but also as the architect of my new invention, of my new life. So, I hand you me now. Make me right. Clean, new. In Jesus' name. If you agree with that prayer, I ask you to say, Amen.